So our church has been going through 1 Peter for a while, and 1 Peter is a book that's about uh, suffering. It's written by Peter to a bunch of churches in a time where there is impending persecution or persecution that's already happening in the church, and Peter is writing to tell the churches how to bear up under suffering and what you're supposed to do when you suffer. And he gets to chapter 4, and he says helpful things like, don't be surprised. Jesus said you'd be suffering. This is what being a Christian is like. He tells them back up in uh, chapter 4, he says, it's time, look, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. This is how God is proving his people to themselves and to the world. He, he puts suffering in their lives and they continue to seek him. They continue to follow their shepherd. They continue to do the things that he tells them to. And by their persevering, they testify about their faith in their good shepherd. He leads me through this valley of the shadow of death. I will keep going because he's the one and he's worth it. And I'll trust him even when the whole world is coming at me. Now, He's just said this to the churches, all the members of the churches. And he knows there's another group of people in the room who are hearing this letter. And it's the people who are going to tell those people every day, not just once in a lifetime in a letter, but day after day. Yes, this is the suffering you are called to keep going. Or you're not suffering But you should be. Quit ducking and get to it. So it's one thing for you yourself to undertake the suffering work. It's another thing for your whole life to be telling other people, you have to suffer it. And follow me while we suffer together. That's what the elders are there to do. So Peter says, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. So elders, I exhort you, shepherd the flock of God. Um, I have a son who is in cross country, and it seemed like an easy sport. You know, I mean, what? You just run almost in one direction, you know. Cross country, it's like meadows and butterflies, you know. And then you stand at the finish line, in the basketball game, you can see the whole game. You know, you just sit in one place. Cross country, you stand at the finish line. And as you see people finish, it's fascinating. The, the first couple across the finish line just kind of lope their long strides that they've been doing for 15, 16, 17 minutes. Later on, about the 20-minute mark, you see people that are probably running their first race, and they look, they are dying. And if that's your kid, and it was once, you think, is this how it ends? Is this? It's just a picture of agony. My favorite, though, are the people who are so miserable they're beyond reacting to it. The only reaction you see is in their eyes. And as they, they cross the finish, like Eric Little in the movie, Chariots of Fire, their, their heads are back, but their eyes grow wider and wider and wider. And it's like, am I going to live? 
am I going to live? How much more pain? But you can only see it in their eyes. And their eyes are fixed on the finish line. And every step, their eyes get wider and wider and wider. And you know, part of what's going through their minds is, what am I going to fall on? You know, there's something called the splash zone in the cross country. I didn't know what that meant. Their bodies just try to get rid of the suffering, and they get rid of everything. And, they, and it's fascinating. It's a real sport, apparently. When you think about the church and about some of the things that you and I are called to suffer, or people under our charge are called to suffer, you know, the marriages, the children, the jobs that give them trouble because of their, their faith, their testimony, the extended family, and you, just, you see over a lifetime of people just eyes getting wider and wider. I thought I was over this. I thought I was through the suffering part. Aren't, haven't we established these boundaries? Haven't we, you know, um, recently we've been talking a lot about moves because Joe has moved to Columbus and it brings back all this PTSD for our, for our families and a couple other families we know about moving, you know, and you just... The wonderful thing about moving is you get to realize how much you've actually grown in love with your spouse and how much has just been, we found a routine that doesn't challenge us, you know? And then you throw in all the chaos and you realize, I'm still a 20-year-old sinner in a 47-year-old body. There's no time in the Christian life where you, you don't meet resistance. And there's no time in your life as shepherds where you don't realize your people are meeting resistance and you are pushing things and it hurts and they're pushing things and it hurts. And you can be tempted to think, look, I got my problems. Can't you just handle this for a minute? But you're the shepherd, you know. No, part of your growing in faith and in love with the Lord Jesus and in your love for your wife, part of your love for grow, growing in love with your wife is you're helping other men grow in love with their wives. Part of your wife's work at learning to live in love with you and learning how to respect you is counseling other women to respect their husbands. You know, and, and when you do that work, you, kind of, you, you do see fruit, but you have to keep going. Peter is saying to them, Shepherd the flock of God among you. They are a flock, and we are the shepherds. And what is a shepherd? I found a, a good definition um, in the book of one Scottish pastor. He says this, the, the pastor or elder, he's writing a book to pastors, but it applies to elders, is by definition a shepherd, the under-shepherd of the flock of God. His primary task is to feed the flock by leading them to green pastures. He also has to care for them when they're sick or hurt and seek them when they go astray. Well, we all know that. That's what a, that's what a shepherd is. That's what a pastor is. That's what an elder is. They seek those who go astray. They, they tend to hurt. They bind up. They lift. They carry the, the young. And then he says this important sentence. The importance of the pastor is, 
Where does the importance of the pastor come from? What's the importance of the pastor based on? Elders boards, why are you significant? Because of your training, because of your education, because you know the right answer every time. Because you can do public speaking. Well, no, obviously. You, because you have the years of experience, because you've gotten it right more times than you've gotten it wrong. He says this, because, you're, you know, because you're, your church is the biggest one in the block. He says this, the importance of the pastor depends on the value of the sheep. Sheep are important because it's God's flock. The ministry, the shepherding, the elder is important because they care for people who are important to God and are loved by him. He gave his son for the people that you have to throw away another family night because so-and-so is having a prop. You know, those are the people that Christ died for. And your whole importance and your value in the world and your, well, your gifts and all the things you think about yourself, it's nothing compared to the value of the sheep. The importance of the pastor, the importance of the shepherd depends on the value of the sheep. And so we need to humble ourselves a bit. And Peter knows this and he knows what's in his, um, in his elder's mind. And he says, look, you have to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. So just what I've said to you is a great guilt trip, right? Stop grumbling. They're important to God. That's compulsion. What he says is do it from your own will, because that's God's will. God's will for you is to love your sheep. Have you ever talked to somebody about how to, how to get along with the husband or wife, and you just, the thought enters your mind, just can't you just have fun figuring out how weird he or she is and just delighting in the goofiness of, yeah, you're, you're an incompetent lover. You, you do not know the first thing about how to fight, do you? Isn't that cute? You just, just love them in their weakness because that's how you love your children, God's so kind to us in giving us children that are born little and cute. You know, because you fall in love with them at that vulnerable stage when they're still kind of attractive and goofy and helpless. And you just, and then as they grow, you're supposed to have learned piece by piece how to love them. Well, love your sheep that way. Love them from your own will because. They are loved by God. Learn how to love them. Learn how to do this without looking over your shoulder and thinking, well, the elders are going to ask how I've done. You know, the presbytery is going to want to know why half the people left the church if I don't go visit half the people and soothe them. You know, no. Love them voluntarily. So the lowest bar I can set for how to apply it is... Stop complaining. Stop grumbling. Keep it to yourself. 
half of the counsel I give is just, you don't have to say everything that's on your mind. And if you stop teaching yourself, you'll stop being taught by yourself. Get to loving them. Learn how to smile when the phone call comes. Learn to go to them at the first sign of trouble so that you're not riding the wave of chaos when you finally have to intervene. Shepherd them voluntarily. Not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. He talks about money, filthy lucre. Um, Not sure how he got to filthy lucre, but in my translation it just says sordid gain. You know, the pastors, pastors in particular, are to be paid for their work. Paul tells us, those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple. Those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. So the Lord has directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. The church should support you, but there's a difference between making a living and making a killing. There's... There's a difference between having all of the stuff that the pastors who trained you in seminary had. You know, the libraries. Oh, the libraries. You know, and I'm sure now it's the digital libraries or whatever. But how many books did the apostles carry around with them? What did people say? What were people going to say about the apostles? What did they say about the apostles in the book of Acts? Well, they're unlearned men, but they've been with, they took note as had they had been with Jesus. Right? You know Jesus. Now, I'm not saying, you know, that there's a bar of frugality that you have to meet, but, you know, All of us, I've talked to several of us in the last month or so, everybody's having trouble financially. Everybody. And you're having trouble, and your people in your churches are having trouble. It's it's the way of the world, but you can still be a faithful shepherd without always looking at your bank account and worrying and grumbling, and, and you can do without. You are, you have a right to a living. Are you staying alive? Well, if we have food and shelter with these, we will be content. You know, let some of us can dial down our expectations of what kind of life the pastorate is. Don't be in it for the money. I don't know of anyone in this room who's in it for the money because you're still here. You know, but but still, when you know when Tim talks about aspirational. Let's not fool ourselves. That's part of the picture. When will I get to a place where, because where it translates into, it translates from the bank account to the people, and then the flocks are only, you know, that's a $40 sheep. That's an $80 sheep. That sheep. Now that's a good fat sheep. That sheep. I want to keep that sheep. Beware of money. Beware of the love of money. And then he says, nor uh, or, uh, yet as lording, or, lording it over those in your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And I want to mostly want to spend time here in one other place in the passage because here is probably where we're most tempted. 
you know, because we do believe in authority. The apostles believed in authority. The apostle Paul was a great authoritarian apostle, and he flashes his badge all over the place because he's being attacked, and he needs to say, I have the authority. Jesus has given this to me, and so I'm telling you. But they don't do that everywhere. You know, if, you have a, if, if you're talking to your wife and you say, God has told you to submit to me. If you have to get to that point, you've lost, right? That's why Paul doesn't say, Husbands, make sure your wife is submitting to you. He tells the wives, submit to your husbands. You have to tell wives to submit. But if you're in the heat of the... Or, you know, I, I love you because I vowed that I would love you. You know, that's... You're not in a good place. It's, that's a safety net, but... You don't want to hear that, right? So you have a badge, and you can wave your badge, and there will, there will be a time to come for that. But what does Peter do? In this passage, he tells us what to do, and he's already demonstrated how to do it. Maybe you noticed it. It's the verse I skipped. But he says here, Proving an example, not lording it over, but proving an example. He's an apostle and he's writing to elders. He has the badge. He has a badge or a security clearance they don't have. But how does he begin the passage? I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. He talks about them in the same boat with you language, fellow elder. You, know, you might say, well, he, he, he flashed that apostolic thing with the witnesses, witnessing the sufferings of Christ. But I, I, I don't think so. And I say that with all the authority of having written this out and then double-checking with Calvin, who actually agrees with me. So this is great. We actually think, Calvin and I, we actually think Peter is not talking about, he's not talking about seeing Jesus suffer on the cross, or at least not only that. He's actually talking about in my body, in my own ministry, in my life, I have suffered the sufferings of Christ. Paul has said, well, in, in the book of Acts, the church is being persecuted by Paul. Jesus confronts him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What the church suffers because they're Christians, Jesus suffers, and so our suffering is his suffering the church's suffering is the suffering of the body of Christ. Paul tells us that he's filling up the sufferings of Christ in his own flesh. And Peter says, I know you're suffering. This is the suffering of Christ, and I'm a fellow witness of those sufferings. I know what this feels like, and this is how I do it. How does he do it? 
Row like this, guys. This is what he's saying. Look at my example. You know, sometimes we, sometimes we, um, we have to give advice and counsel, and it brings us up short because we realize the thing that we've been preaching, we're not great at ourselves applying. And some of the best pastoral advice I ever got was from a fellow that preached to us in Presbytery once. He says, guys, think about your life and think about the counsel you'd give to yourself. Give it to yourself and then do it. And then you can say to the people who ask you, how do you do it? You, you have something to run on. Isn't that the most basic, obvious, duh thing? It's, you know, you're still a sinner and you're still disobedient, but labor to have an example to set before the sheep. Watch your own life, not because, you know, you don't want to be a hypocrite, but because this will actually help people. If I am in the Word, if I read one less book and read one more chapter of the Bible and actually think about it and grind it into myself, pray more for your people rather than tell everybody what kind of trouble you're having with your people. So, elder, if every wife in the church was as happy as your wife, would the wives in your church be a good advertisement for the church? Take a picture of her at 9 o'clock at night and put that up on your website. Now, that's not... That's not totally fair, I realize, because everybody starts in different places and there are different, you know, you you work with what you have with yourself, with your family. But what are you doing? You know, don't put a picture of your wife up on the website. Put a picture of what, you know, what have you done for her? How are you loving her? How are you trying to overcome the years of bitterness that before your repentance you laid the rails for. What are you doing about it? That's the test. And that's the hope that you can give to other people. Other people don't have the last 10 years of your life. But they have your understanding of the problem, your understanding of the issue. So your children too. If all the, all the church's children have the relationship with their fathers that yours has with you, okay, there's a great difference there. But How are you addressing it? What are you doing? Because there's great power, not in saying, that's weird, my children are great. Okay, but there is great power in saying, we've suffered that. This is how we did it. Some days it worked and some days it doesn't, but God will be faithful to you. As you you plow, you know, put your oar in the water and keep paddling. God has been faithful to us. Be an exemplar. Not necessarily results, because you don't have control ultimately of results, but of steps. Be an exemplar of somebody who's trying. You know, what was that book? Daddy Tried. I, I say that many times a week. You know, read the book once. Say that phrase, hashtag Daddy Tried, you know, many, many times. Sometimes my wife says it to me after a particularly awful failure. But your example is not always going to be the fruit, the picture-perfect still-life fruit of a wonderful, peaceful, happy family, peaceful, happy church. It's going to be the, 
the picture of a duck paddling like mad. Waterfall here, you know. Well, ducks can fly. Um, <laughs> swimmer, you know, really trying to stay away from Niagara Falls. That's, that's your life. That's the life of the church, really trying hard to stay. So this is, this is hard work, and it's depressing. And people will look at the output of your life, and they'll say, well, you know, that's not really great. <laughs> so what's going to keep you going? Everything I've said to this point is sort of set up for this because you've been to the pastor's conference already, the shepherd's conference. You've heard all the things we're supposed to be doing. You've, you've heard about all the comfort and all the... Okay. But there's one more thing that Peter throws in here. We've talked about the importance of the flock, the people that God loves and cares for. The other important component about First Peter that I didn't know when I started preaching through it, I should have, it's not just about suffering. It's also about glory. Again and again and again and again, Peter directs our minds to glory, to the finish line. <gasps> How much more? Chapter 1, verse 3, our salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. Chapter 1, verse 7, the proof of your faith will result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The prophets foretold not only Christ's sufferings, but also the glories to follow. Chapter 1, verse 12, we must fix our hope on the grace that comes to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 12, because of our good behavior, opponents will not good results. Because our good behavior, opponents will glorify God in the day of his visitation. That's results. The Gentiles, chapter 4, verse 5, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You know, that's right at the door. We're in the last days. The end of all things is near, chapter 4, verse 7. It's all prepared. I go to prepare a place for you. And the apostles started saying almost immediately, the end is near. It's ready. You're almost there. Keep running. Keep on rejoicing, he says, chapter 4, verse 13, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice. And now Peter tells us he also is a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. I have stock in the bank waiting. Jesus is keeping it for me. And now when the chief shepherd appears, hmm, you know, it's the high point for me of reading Exodus, Moses back and forth with God about God wanting to just destroy the Israelites and raise up Moses for himself. And he says, you know, I'm not going to go up with you. Moses, you take him. And Moses says, if you're not with us, what's the point? Get us out of Egypt. Leave us alone, and I don't care what the land looks like. If we don't have you, so God says, okay, I'll go with you. And then he says, I pray you, I want to see you. Show me your glory. You know, for Moses, it wasn't just success at the job, a church that doesn't go berserk. You know, it sounds great. 
But for Moses, the finish line was, I want to see him. There's the famous, my favorite passage of the Pilgrim's Progress. And some of you probably know what it is based on what I've just said. Christian is talking to Prudence. Prudence asks him the question. He's talked about all the difficulties he's had and what happened to his wife and his children and all the things he's endured since he left his city. And he says, what is it that makes you so desirous to go to Mount Zion? Christian says, why, there I hope to see him alive that did hang dead on the cross. I always loved that passage. There's a finish line, brothers. You're going to make it because he promised you. He promised you he would persevere you, so you persevere. Keep going, and you'll see him alive that did hang down on the cross for you. And when you first saw that cross and your burden was removed and you rejoiced, you'll see him thriving. And I still remember having a dinner with a friend of mine that I needed to ask him a hard question about his life, and I wanted to watch and see what he'd do with it, because he was the kind of friend you just never doubt. But I, I was starting to worry, and I, I looked at him, and I said, well, how, how is this, how is that, how is that going? And I, I made eye contact with him, and I held his eyes while he answered, and he told me what was true. It's still hard. It's getting better. It's still hard. And we went through some details about that. And, and uh, that was God's blessing to me. His eyes were burned in my brain. A month later, he was dead. And it was like, that was God preparing me to say, he was looking at me. Now, and he's an elder, he's looking at Jesus. Unbelievable joy, unbelievable happiness. That's what Peter is telling you. Your eyes are getting big. You don't know if you can make it, but the chief shepherd is waiting there for you. You have loved his sheep. How wonderful and sweet will it be to have loved his sheep to the end and your body just falls across the finish line. You're, you know, you're on up it's bloody it's awful you just the last full measure of the and he's there to prop you up and give you the imperishable wreath it doesn't wither it doesn't fade it's with you forever i loved his sheep because i loved him and i knew he's waiting for me brothers keep going let's pray